Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Well, hello, and welcome to Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Oh my goodness, hope you are keeping warm. It's like two degrees in Boston, and I'm about to head down to New Orleans for the Folk Alliance International Conference, which is happening, and I'm going to be gathering some really cool Basic Folk interviews that I am pumped to share with you. Uh, also have been rocking my very own Basic Folk beanie, and if you're jealous, which you should be because they're amazing, you can get your own at my website, cindyhouse.net. If you're not familiar, these are knit hats that my mom made, and they have a Basic Folk label on the front of them. And again, you can check them out on my website, cindyhouse.net, or you can go to my Instagram. There are several pictures. Today on the podcast, very Happy to have Amethyst Kia, who is an extremely talented banjo player and guitar player, uh, originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and now lives in Johnson City, Tennessee. Uh, really cool person. Um, immediately liked her right away, uh, and we we talk about a number of different things. Um, coming of age in like the early 2000s, although having like really tremendous taste from the 90s, um, like Nirvana and Tori Amos were some of her favorites. And then later on, she combined the love of those types of bands with old time and kind of saw similarities between them in her own style, which is pretty cool. We also talk about being a loner when she was a kid uh, and how that maybe affects her musicality in interesting ways. We talk about her collaboration with Rhiannon Giddens, Allison Russell, and Layla McCalla in Our Native Daughters. We really cover it all here with Amethyst Kia, who I'm very pleased to have on the podcast. And would love to share a clip of her version of Trouble So Hard, which is from her album Amethyst Kia and her Chest of Glass, which is a little bit more like alternative rock sounding, but you'll probably recognize the phrase, but um, originally recorded by Al Lomax, and it was Vera Ward Hall singing the song. So let's hear it, and then we'll get into our conversation with Amethyst Kia on Basic Folk.
Amethyst Kia, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, so you were born in Chattanooga and raised in Johnson City, Tennessee. Being from Southern Appalachia and reading up about you, something cool that I read is how you feel about mountains and how they seem to like symbolize a feeling of home. I um, was wondering if you maybe could talk about that a little bit more about that connection. Oh, yeah. Well, just to just to kind of clarify. So I actually so I was raised in Chattanooga, but I've been living in Johnson City for 15 years. So that wasn't really that far off the mark. But just to make that distinction, I just because I graduated from high school in Chattanooga. Um, but yeah, so living in East Tennessee my entire life, I uh, for the longest time, I didn't really necessarily think of myself as a mountain person or an Appalachian person for a really, really long time because I grew up in suburbia and I listened to like, you know, Bleak 182 and Tori Amos and Radiohead and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So like I was kind of in this other world um, and not really thinking in terms of my place of where I'm from because I was always kind of off in my own little world in my head. So um, it wasn't really until when I moved to Johnson City and I started studying traditional music, I started to really kind of reconnect myself to my place, um, which was, it was a really kind of pivotal and grounding moment for me to feel like I have like a physical place uh, in a physical space because so much of my teenage years was, as I said, spent kind of, you know, getting lost in books, getting lost in music and being a part of other worlds and not necessarily feel and feeling a little bit disconnected to where I lived. So um, it gave me a sense of grounding. And um, it wasn't really until a couple of years ago um, that I really started to understand my connection and need to be near mountains. And that was when I was driving from Connecticut to Lake Placid to uh, meet up with uh, Rhiannon Giddens and her touring party to open for them in Lake Placid, and I drove through the Adirondack Mountains, and I'd never been there before. And all of a sudden, I just felt, I, I in my head, I was like, I could live here. That just jumped out, like, involuntarily. And I'm like, okay, I'm a mountain person. So, <laughs> so um... Yeah, I mean, that is plays a huge that's going to play a huge role if I ever, you know, move from Johnson City. Uh that mountains is going to play a huge role. Um <laughs> and I mean, I guess it's probably a mix of, you know, the music and, you know, the people that I've met along the way, um and just the landscape, like it's just something that always has to be, you know, always has to be a backdrop, you know. So, in thinking about um when you were like a little kid, too old to have your own taste in music, um, your dad had a great record collection. Yeah. And I'm interested to know like how your family shared music with each other and shared music with you. Yeah, well, you know, the majority of the music sharing really was um, at, at home and in the car. My Both of my parents absolutely loved music, and so... Um, all of the music sharing really was just in the home. Uh, my dad um, had a, you know, he had a vinyl player, he had a, a record player, and then he had a CD player, and he had like a compressor and reel-to-reel tape. Like he was really into it, and he had these like three-way 
um, like Sansui speakers. And so, you know, everything that I heard was really just shared and shared in the house. And then, you know, anytime we would take any long trips anywhere, there was always music playing in the car, would more so like, than the radio. Would he sit you down and say, all right, Amethyst, I need you to listen to this, or he would just play it and you'd No, absorb. he would just he would just play it, you know? And if I had any questions, uh, I would ask. And also, he would, he would just love to just, on his own accord, just talk about it, you know, mm-hmm. on his own. So it was just kind of a... It was a very kind of casual kind of exchange, mm-hmm. you know, with that. But and as you became old enough to have your own taste in music, it was kind of like a weird time for music consumption. You were in high school from 2000 to 2004, mm-hmm. so like Napster, illegal downloading was huge. <laughs> oh for my everyone. gosh! I man, I pirated so much music. <laughs> like, hopefully that's hopefully the statute of limitations is up now. What, but, what uh... was that? <laughs> what was that experience like as a music fan during that time in terms of like how you listen to music and if it affects you? at all now as you reflect on on that particular time hmm well i guess for me during that time you know especially it was because it was right around the time also that i was starting to get into playing guitar um and so for me when i really started to develop my own like seeking out of music um and kind of figuring out things that i liked um you know, I had Kazaa and then eventually LimeWire when Kazaa was kind of going out. But, you know, I would get on like, you know, fan forms with music and I would like talk to others. So there, there was like these different like online communities that were centered around different, different, um, different kinds of music. And so I was really heavily like online with that. And then, um, you know, searching for songs and creating. Well, for me, I know before me it was mixtapes. But in my generation, it was, you know, mixed CDs. And so I would, you know, I would spend like hours like downloading music and making mixtapes because it was like if I wanted to listen to something, I had to make not a mixtape, but mixed CD. I had to make a mixed CD so I could, you know, put it in my like giant book CD sleeve <laughs> and my CD Walkman, you know, when I would go when I'd go different places so I can listen to my music or listen to music in my in my room. So, um there was something about finding songs and putting together a mixed CD that was, um, I just loved it. It was fun. And so that way of consuming it, um, you kind of had to be a lot more deliberate and think about what you were doing. I kind of feel like now with, you know, streaming services and being able to have things like Spotify or Apple music, um, I hate to say this, but it it kind of it kind of takes the fun out of like finding music a little bit, um, just because it's so easy, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's like I can download like you know ten albums to my phone in like five min- less than five minutes, and so so I don't know. It's it's so it's kind of changed for me in that it's just I don't know. It's a little it's. I kind of miss that, kind of like how I miss going to Blockbuster and picking out movies, like, you know, just that hunt of, like, going in and finding it had its own Mm -hmm. catharsis that was almost as, that was just as important as the listening to music, so, you know, I've had to sort of adjust, of course, adjust my thinking and roll with the times, but, but yeah. You 
got your first guitar when you were 13, and one thing that's so interesting about you is the different kinds of styles that you've mastered over the years, like alternative folk, bluegrass, old-time Celtic. How has each of these styles changed your relationship with the guitar, like how you approach playing, how you feel about the instrument? God, these are great questions. Thank Thanks. you so much. <laughs> I don't always get questions this great. Um, how have those things changed my approach with the guitar or affected my relationship with the guitar? Um, I mean, it's just like further strengthen it, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, because it feels like if it just kind of feels like the sky's the limit. I can do whatever I want with the guitar. It's my main, it's the main thing I grab when I'm writing a song. I mean, I've been playing banjo for several years now, but when I write a song, I pick up my guitar first, you know, I, you know, the, the just the sound of the guitar and the things that I can do with it. It's just, it's, it's just strengthened my relationship with it, mm. I guess is the best way to describe it. It's like, but. it's almost like each, each new style or each new struggle kind of like brought you and the guitar together, like a, like a yeah. human relationship almost. Exactly. And, you know, on top of that, the, the stronger my relationship is with my guitar and what I can do, the stronger, the stronger that my, that I feel like I can, the stronger that my songs can be. Um, I kind of feel like one of the big things when I, decided that I wanted to start playing solo shows is that my songs are only going to be as strong as my guitar playing. I want to be able to play a show by myself and people still stay interested. And that involved me doing different things on the guitar that can allow me to do different kinds of arranging. You know, I can start songs in a different way in them differently, you know, and, so to having that kind of flexibility guitar wise, um, just really helped my songwriting a lot. So, um, so yeah, it strengthened my relationship with the guitar itself and, um, really opened doors for me as far as like the kinds of songs that I can write. So you were listening to alternative music when you were younger, um, in high school, you mentioned Tori Amos Nirvana, Radiohead, um, I found this really cool quote from you that said it was it was the oneness with solitude that I was able to explore music in an unfiltered way with little interruption. This focus would lead me to exert the set, that same amount of energy into studying and performing traditional music. Um, couple things. Well, I guess like it, so it sounds like you, so you have a degree in, um, traditional music, like mm -hmm. you studied it, you know, not only studied performing it, but the history of it. Yes. But it also sounds like you studied, alternative music and music you were listening to in high school with the same amount of like discipline. So mm -hmm. I was wondering what that like initial study of Nirvana and Tori Amos was like and how, how you, how you formed that practice and brought it with you to your undergrad degree. Well, one thing that I've learned about my personality is that if I'm not, emotionally moved by something it's really hard for me to be interested in wanting to learn about it and with the reason why I was able to have so much focus on alternative music is because I related to a lot of the songs a lot of the content a lot of the things that are being talked about are related to um uh just you know the 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 passion and the 
the distinct, authentic character of the voices, um, the risks that they would take um, in their music. I just really related to that. It it would felt like um, just sort of like ultimate freedom. It like matched my spirit of how I wanted to live my own life, you know. And because of that, I just just wanted to listen to as much as I could. So um, it really just boiled down to like the way I like emotionally related to it. Um, and that ended up transferring over into old time music. I saw lots of overlap um, as far as like the spirit and the content. It's a lot of old time music. You know, you know, because a lot of old time music is, you know, that we consume is via uh, field recordings. You have these folks that when they were performing and playing, they were, you know, really just playing in their communities and regionally and communicating with one another in a more regional way. Um, and so when they would perform, they would have these very distinct character in their voice um, and um so I just, that overlap of like that distinct sense of character and self um, that I feel is exemplified a lot in a lot of forms of alternative music, I felt that crossover with the folk music I was listening to. So the passion equally just kind of went down that path again. So I feel like we could have a whole other podcast just yeah. like diving into that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I have more other questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I like, yeah, I would love to talk about that forever and ever. Um, mm -hmm. So, did you were you, did you keep to yourself as a kid? Yeah, I would say when I was younger, I was a little more. Um, I was a little more outgoing when I was younger, but when I got a little bit further into like when I turned into like twelve, thirteen, fourteen, and onward, um, I started feeling a little out of place and like I didn't really fit in anywhere. Um, and I don't know, kind of just developing like different, these different social anxieties. And I think a lot of it was probably based in, um, you know, being a, you know, being a black female in a predominantly white suburban area, a lot of my friendships and relationships people interacted with, um, and also my family didn't go to church either in Chattanooga is a it's a it's a fairly large city, but it's a very very uh, religious city and a very racially tense city. Um, so um, it it made it a little difficult to to really like make friends or find a group that I felt comfortable in. And so I ended up kind of the best solution was okay. Well, I'm gonna play guitar and keep reading my books and do this. And so as I got older, like that became my refuge because I didn't really feel like I fit anywhere else. It wasn't really until my last two years of high school, my parents saw that like, cause I was a really bright student, but when it, when I got into high school and you know, then if you bring in like me being, you know, not being sure of my sexuality, you throw that in the mix, you throw in the mix that I was, you know, gender nonconforming at a tomboy and I didn't, and I wanted to, keep dressing how I was dressing, you tie all that in, you've got a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff to unpack. So, so my parents transferred me to a creative arts high school the last two years of high school. And I only, my only wish is that I, that I could have gone sooner, you know, mm. but I, I'm grateful for those two years that I did go because it gave me an idea of like, this is what every, every kid should be able to be in a place where they can be a nerd. There were the theater nerds, the band geeks, like 
all the weirdos were at the school, you know, and so it was a great experience, but that really, uh, really set, set a precedent that like, you know what, there's other weird people out there. So I think I'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> Did you also play basketball? Yeah, I played basketball from, I guess the fourth grade until eighth grade. And I came to find that solitary pursuits were just kind of more, more up my alley, you know, mm-hmm. which proved to, which proved to be a little bit of a, a, a learning curve for me when I did start playing music with other musicians. I had a huge learning curve that I had to overcome. So, you know, but yeah. What was the challenge there when you were playing with other musicians? Well, so to go back a little bit, you know, part of the reason why my, my family like had my, both my parents had three goals for me and that was just to make good grades play some kind of sport or some sort of group activity where I can interact with people and then get play your some, antibodies then, all set. Right. And then play some <laughs> kind of, some kind of instrument. Like that was like a, like a family goal. Um, and what made it difficult to overcome playing with other musicians is because I went for several, several years, like the first 10 years of playing guitar by myself. So when I got to ETSU and, um, you know, I started, I get involved with the community. I remember my first bluegrass jam that I ever played in. I remember them asking me like, what key was I playing in? And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like I had no clue. I mean, I've learned how to play by ear and I played by myself. I never had to know the key of a song. I just would move, move the capo around until it's, till I could sing in the, whatever, whatever song it was that I wanted to learn. So... Then I was like, and then I picked the only, then for some reason, I didn't know any like traditional songs at that time. So I played Weird by Hanson. So I was, it was a total jam buster. Like quite a few people got up and left, but some people were sitting there like, what? And then some people tried to play along, you know? Um, so <laughs> if that gives you any idea, like my introduction to like getting into like, you know, playing in a traditional music community, like that was it, you know? Um, Cause I was, like I said, I was so like out of touch with like that world, you know, coming into it. So really a lot of my learning about performance, stage presence, working with other musicians, learning theory in a way that functions well for, um, you know, popular music, as it were, all of those things happened, you know, through that Bluegrass Old Time Country Music Studies and like set a great foundation for me to be able to have a career in music, you know, Um, you know, getting up and performing, um, you know, initially it's initially, you know, you end up playing like these three like main like all student shows. And then there's other bands, which happen to be the one that I was in. Um, called the Old Time Pride Band, which we were able to go and we would meet twice a week instead of once a week. And then we would also be invited to play other other places around the area and even had a chance to like play in the Czech Republic um, in 2011. So so anyway, all of that kind of was just a huge part of how I've been able to overcome that that sort of learning curve of you know, being able to like interact in in a meaningful way and be mm-hmm. able to, to very, be able to create and collaborate with other musicians. So, um, is it okay to ask about um, when your mom passed away? 
But you died, you were 18. Um, and it seems like music played a huge role in that healing process. Um, yeah. You wrote a song for her and sang it at the funeral. What made you decide to approach your grief like that? Well, I a big part of it had to do with... Um, I didn't know what else to do with the grief. I think maybe during that whole ordeal, I think I might have cried once. But I kind of ended up more or less numbing myself. And the only way that I could really express anything was through writing it, writing a song. Because I wasn't, I was just repressing it. It was just a coping mechanism. I was just kind of repressing how I was feeling. I was repressing crying. I was, and so I wrote that song. And then after that, um, and I was actually just rethinking this the other day, but that whole process after that, like, I wasn't really crying about it and I wasn't really talking about it and I wouldn't really talk about it for years other than with my dad. Um, and, and I realized that my grief was coming out like in other ways. Like I remember that first year, um, you know, I, pretty much lost my appetite. You know, I think I might've eaten, I might've eaten like maybe a thousand to 1500 calories a day for like almost two years. I lost like a ton of weight. Um, you know, cause I, and, already, and then I had like these weird, like body issues with myself. So when I started losing the weight, I was like, Oh, this is cool. You know, I mean, it's, it doesn't make any sense, but no, it's cool until it's not cool. <laughs> right. Anymore. It's, it's cool until you like start to pass out because you're dizzy. So, yeah. you know, um, so that was the whole thing. Like I started, I remember like, I started like, you know, my mom's, all my mom's old clothes that she couldn't wear anymore because she had gained weight. Like I was like wearing her clothes. Like I was, my grief was coming out in these other ways that I didn't really think about until the other day I was going down that path. I'm wow. like, wow, that was, I was grieving. Um, it just was in a way that was very, um, it was just a little, I don't know if subtle is even the right word, but it was just, I was keeping it all in and then just doing little things that I guess were a way to cope with it, I guess. But um, it wasn't the healthiest way um, to cope with it. And this is all, you know, me talking in hindsight. It wouldn't be until about, I guess, about up to about four years ago when I started going to therapy, um, when I really started to, like, unpack. Because mm -hmm. there was still, um, there was, like, a two-year period where, um, you know, I had graduated from undergrad in college and then I decided to go straight into grad school after that and I didn't really have a plan it was just that I was so used to being in school that I was afraid to like even though I was already like starting to gain a, like an audience like where I lived I could have like continued pursuing music but I stayed in school because I was afraid again this is me talking in hindsight I was afraid to like really face the, the real world mm -hmm. in, in a sense and so then I went through this two-year period where I wasn't really ready for grad school and I was stressed out all the time and I was, uh, over, I was stretched out way too thin. And so then I started like going out and partying. Um, I had this like weird, like year and a half party phase. And then eventually like my dad's like, listen, I've been, I've been really wanting to support you with going to grad school, but like, this is destroying you and you also, you should, I really encourage you to, cause he had started going to therapy and he was encouraging me to go. So I did, and then I started to realize all of this stuff I was doing that didn't make any sense was related to the fact that I hadn't really 
full on grasped the the grief from my teenage years. Mm. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of me unpacking and allowing myself to cry more. And I've cried more now probably in the past four years than I have my entire life because I've, I've just allowed for it to happen when it needs to happen, you know? So, um, so yeah, it's been this really long, strange kind of journey. And, mm. you know, I wrote a song called Wild Turkey, um, which is going to be on the new record. And it's directly talking about those years of like, you know, going numb and trying to pretend like everything's fine. But like it came out in other ways. Um, my I built this huge wall up and separated myself from people. I don't think my whole undergrad, I don't think I ever developed any personal relationships with anyone. It was always either student relationship or studer Studer, student, hmm. professor relationship, but I didn't have like a social life. It wasn't until, and I was also like back in the closet too then. So when I was 27, which I don't know, I hear that there's something about turning 27, like all your cells regenerate or something, and you're kind of huh. a, a different person. I don't know. But all of a sudden I was like, you know what? I'm going to start dating and I want to start having social relationships with people because I was tired of not doing that and then I went into it but I basically was like I was basically acting like a like a 16 year old because I never developed those like social skills because I you know what I mean so I had this like late bloomer thing happening Mm -hmm. um but I managed to like learn quite a bit in those in those years and it's like, I I don't know, it's kind of like I had like my early 20s moment and my late 20s, except it only lasted for like two or three years as opposed to like seven or eight, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But but yeah, I don't know. It's just been... So Wild Turkey is kind of like me being like, okay, this happened. I'm recognizing it happened and also kind of telling my younger self that it's okay to not mm. be okay, you know? Um, and then the other song that I wrote on the new record called Firewater is talking about, like, towards the end of my party phase when, like, things were no longer fun, when it was very clear that something else was going on with me that I needed to explore. Mm. And that song's also on the record, too. So, um, so yeah. Once again, music and song being my way of, like, trying to reconcile stuff, you mm-hmm. know? So. Wow. all right uh different topic but also very important um you had a revelation in studying traditional music um roots musicians are historically portrayed as white um and when people of color have played roots music in the past it's portrayed as like stereotypically hillbilly um but that is not an actuality uh what was your experience with this topic and coming to the the realization of like the actual truth? Well, I will say that there was a one class in particular, um, one particular semester that involved a class and an instructor and a band. So there were three things that were happening at once that led me down the path of like, okay, I want to look more into old time music. And that was my American folk music class where, uh, Dr. Ted Olson, who is, uh, he's like a Grammy nominated, um, 
professor. Um, he got Grammy nominations for his liner notes for the Bristol Sessions box set and the Johnson City Sessions box set. Abs- he's a he's literally an encyclopedia, like just amazing, uh, amazing, brilliant uh, um, uh, Appalachian scholar of the highest order. Um, and we one of the first things that we learned in the class was that Southern Roots music Apple and Appalachian Roots music is a generally a conglomerate of uh, West African and British Celtic folk music kind of coming together. And that was the first time I'd ever, because up until this point, all I knew about Appalachian music was bluegrass. And all I knew about bluegrass was the Beverly Hillbillies, like (laughs) most people, you know, or like, or Deliverance or some other like sort of God awful (laughs) caricature of it. Um, So, um, so that piqued my interest because initially what attracted me to, even going down the path of even exploring bluegrass music, one, or like Appalachian music, one is that I just had a, a general curiosity. Two, um, I wanted to play music in an academic setting in some way, but I didn't really want to go down the classical music path because at that point in time, I was hell-bent on learning, continuing to learn to play by ear. <laughs> and so, like, even though I took a classical guitar class in high school, I just... I didn't want to conf- I didn't want to conform, you know. I raised my fist or whatever, but <laughs> at the time, uh, it's very Tori Amos of you, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was like, ah, I don't want to do that. So, um, you know, I took a group bluegrass guitar class with uh, Jack Toddle, who was the founder of the Bluegrass Old Time Country Music Studies program, and um, so I started out doing that. Um, started learning how to play like you know country style strumming, which is also prevalent in old time music and bluegrass music. And then, um, the Merle Travis style picking, um, which is sort of like a, it's like a variant of uh, Piedmont style blues picking. Um, so I started learning that. And then I started getting into the history because what I noticed is that in that space that I sort of, there were quite a few instructors that were open and welcome that, knew the history of the music, but it was really like some other, like it was other students and other situations where it seemed like I wasn't necessarily, I got the sense that like some people felt like I shouldn't be there. And so I was like, do I really want to pursue a music that, you know, that I'm going to be surrounded by people that sort of don't think I belong. Um, But quite clearly when I took that American folk class and I started meeting more and more students I started to realize that like there's there is a place for me here and there's always going to be people that don't get it but I figured out there was a place for me very quickly so when I took that course I so he's talked about you know how in fact at its very foundation like old time music and American roots music which later culminated into many other genres of music and you can hear it in all the different genres of American music was very much something that it was it's a hybrid. It's a cultural hybrid of musics. So that was really compelling. And then my instructor, Roy Andrade, who kind of sought me out and wanted and really wanted me to play in the old time, old time band. And then, um, the Carolina chocolate drops, all of that, like happened at once where I learned about the Carolina chocolate drops and heard what they were doing. And I'm like, okay, like there's a place for me here, even if not everybody gets it. But then, so path forward, now, like, 
now more than ever, more and more people are like getting knowledge of the history now. Um, you know, Americana Music Awards and the Americana Association, they're actively like recognizing, you know, more and more people of color and uh, LGBT people like that's starting to to grow a bit. So now it's now it's starting to come out more and more. And then not to mention, you know, my the project that was asked to be part of our Native Daughters that playing playing a significant role. Um, essentially, there are so many types of people, so many different genders of people, sexual orientations and races of people that made American music possible. And when we have a history that has a tendency to kind of erase or overlook other people's contributions, um, I mean, that's being overlooked essentially means that you have a that, that's like the sign of a, you know, a fragmented society when people are deliberately being overlooked for their contributions. Um, you know, when the commercial music industry started, hip, black hillbilly bands they couldn't make money recording as a hillbilly band because the record executives and their mind were convinced that only white people would listen to string band music. And it's like, hmm. you clearly, so the people that started the industry didn't have any real knowledge of music. They just wanted to make money. And so they had no real knowledge. So that kind of inadvertently is why there's so many different genres now, uh, because, you know, of these distinctions of, well, only one type of person is going to listen to this music. And so people have kind of learned to compartmentalize music and their consumption. And like, you know, how many, you know, the idea of a guilty pleasure, like, oh, what's your guilty pleasure music? And it's like, we shouldn't have guilty pleasures. We should be able to enjoy, you know, and shouldn't be scrutinized for what we listen to, you know? So if anything, playing in the traditional music program just help me realize that anybody's musical expression should be celebrated and should be recognized, not only just because if a person's moved by it, they should be able to do it, but also recognizing the contributions of the music as as it really happened, you know? So, um, yeah, I kind of went on tangent again, but... It was awesome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I enjoy it. Um, can you talk about the impact of Rhiannon Giddens, who you've mentioned a couple times? You guys are in Our Native Daughters, which is a project she put together, mm -hmm. um, and she was in the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Can you talk about the impact of Rhiannon Giddens on you before the project and and now? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, like I said, like the, the Chocolate Drops, like I had all their records. I went to see them like at least five times over the, over, over that, the period that they were, um, together. Um, I just, I really appreciated her, her commitment to uplifting unheard voices with her song choices, um, her knowledge of, of the history of the songs and wanting to continue to champion, bring about bringing more attention to the lesser known aspect of the history of folk music and then and doing it in such a such an electric like funky and engaging way i mean the way that they played 
the kind the rhythmically what they had going when they played um when they played songs and fiddle tunes like nobody was doing it quite the way like the way that they were doing it and so compelling and engaging um I mean, I never left a sh- every show I ever went to. There was like standing ovations. Sometimes there'd be standing ovations in the middle of the set. Like people would stand up and clap. I remember a show at the Paramount Theater. I um, mean, my dad went, I guess this was back in 20, 2011. And they played at the Paramount Theater in Bristol, Tennessee, on the Tennessee side of State Street. And I, th- they, I think there were like five standing ovations before the end of the set. I mean, it's just, they were just, they're just, they're just that amazing, you know? So, um, to be asked to be part of, of a project that continues on that legacy of looking at things that aren't being talked about, that need to be talked about in a, in a disarming way, such as via music, to be asked to be part of that after witnessing someone else, that same person doing that in another capacity, to be part of that tell storytelling is uh, was really really was really was a big deal for me and really um, was compelling and and when I wanted to do this, like all the stuff that's happened afterwards, like um, the nominations from the Americana Fest, the nominations from Americana UK. The Grammy nomination, the the top twenty and top ten lists, and No Depression and Rolling Stone, and um, you know Ms. Magazine, and like all these different th- things, like none of us were thinking about that, you know. And so the fact that it's gotten as much press as it's had, as much attention as it has, let us know that like people are people are ready to hear to hear these things mm-hmm. and it just really just really meant a lot but just on my own like this was something that um was just really important to me regardless of how far it got like I'm so glad I was able to do it and all this other stuff is just a bonus I mean mm-hmm. when we started this project it was like a collaborative thing um you know and then by the end of this year it's like well we're a band now so <laughs> I guess we need to you know what are we going to do with that so um, so we're, so we're, we're, we've, we've been keeping in touch and talking and, um, and hopefully we can find some time to, uh, to maybe get back together again, but, um, nothing really hard set at this point. Mm-hmm. Like it's all just, we've just been keeping in touch and we'd love to do some more in the future. Our schedules are so all over the place that, yeah, you yeah. know, hurting the cats is always the challenge, <laughs> but, but we are, you know, we we're so grateful for the reception and like I said like being part of being able to work with someone that I've looked up to is like and you know an, an icon in in folk music essentially um is has been really special and it's been awesome to be able to work with her so I don't know her personally but um it's also nice that she seems really relatable just like from like some tweets I've seen go out there like she's very funny Kind yeah, of goofy and yeah. just like she, she's basically like she's God, but also right. like, <laughs> yeah. she's also funny and and normal and nice. Oh yeah, I mean she's just I mean it's just like anybody else. It's like when you first meet someone that you've seen as this, as the person like Rhiannon Giddens and like the bright lights and the big font, you know, and then 
you and then you actually meet her and get to know her and she's just I mean it's just like anything else she's like a she's just a down to earth like person that's really passionate mm. about what she's about what she's doing and I think that's really it's really cool. Um, I did want to talk about your your song Black Myself, which I hope you win that Grammy. It's like such a great song. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's a personal song that addresses interracial discrimination, um, which the way that that you write about it, it's like I can't even begin to to like say how what like how informative it is just to like read through the lyrics, like the line I don't past the test of the paper bag, which yeah. I'd never heard of before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there were, um, there were Brown societies and part of being part of the Brown society, usually it was well-to-do mixed and or light skin blacks that wanted to continue to stay as light as humanly possible in order to be treated better, um, to look and be as Eurocentric as humanly possible. And so, in turn, and that was a... Even though, obviously, these people, they, they dress very well, they had their high, you know, they had their parties and their whatever, but this was a very, you know... Needless to say, it was a very unhealthy coping mechanism because, in turn you then look at someone else that's also black, but happens to be darker than you, and you essentially take on the role, or a tr you're try it's, a, it's basically trying to join the role of the oppressor in order to be seen favorably, which is it's which is a unhealthy coping mechanism, as far as I can tell. And so, um, I, you know, with this song, I really wanted to try to encapsulate, like, what this project stands for, um, I didn't, I wasn't thinking like, I'm going to write an anthem and it's going to be, you know, that's not really what I was thinking when I started writing it. Um, you know, the, I know I mentioned, I know I mentioned this in the liner notes, but, um, but, you know, the term black myself came from a line from Sid Hemphill's version of John Henry, which was, I don't want no red black woman, black myself. And that, so the term like black myself, black myself kept just kind of going through my head and then I just sat down and I'm like you know this there's there's something here like it was all of the things um that I've experienced personally and also what we'd been what I've been reading about you know before this project you know I took my very first um you know like an African-American political history class it was like a special um elective class that I took in college where I was just like, I just learned so much in that. And also my dad was born in 1947. So then I also have personal anecdotes of his experience growing up, um, you know, in the, in the segregated South and the things that he had to kind of um, endure and go through and what his parents had to endure and go through and the rest of um, his brothers and sisters. So that and, you know, what I learned in my history classes and what I started reading on my own, um, you know, Ralph Ellison's, um, invisible man, that line where I say, you, you look in my eyes, but you don't see me comes from that book because 
his whole the whole book is about him being invisible because because he's black and not being fully seen for who he was you know so um just so many things that i've read and listened to and felt in my life just kind of came out in that one song and i've never properly put any of those feelings to song or written about or really i guess written about them in a cohesive way and so it was almost like this project itself was the real sort of like um kind of the i mean it was the progenitor of the thoughts coming out onto the paper you know so even though yes i did i did pen the song um i don't know i would have i don't know when or how i would have penned it had it not been being inspired by this project so mm. so i will you know i you know that's why um you know i i'm so happy that i like again i'm i'm so grateful to be part of that project because it it just it just changed my life in so many ways it was for all of us it was a very um just emotionally cleansing spiritually cleansing whatever however you want to put it like it was just um it was really like great thing for all of us to be able to to do together wow um and finally I want to talk about your amazing sense of style. Mm. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's like I think the first thing that I notice about you is that you dress differently than other traditional folk musicians. You know, you stand out amongst your peers when it comes to your clothing, like in a good way. No, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, Do you recognize that? And then how do you use your clothing to express yourself? Well, I, my whole clothing and fashion journey has been, um, it's been ever evolving and it's been, it's ever been a, um, sort of a, an exploration of, of self in a way. Um, I've always looked at clothing as being one way to express yourself, um, and also as a way to be artistic and put something together that creates like a cohesive thing. And, um, there was a couple of things. One, one thing I had to kind of overcome was how can I dress in a way that I feel comfortable in, but isn't like focused on like hyper femininity or like wearing or wearing like dresses and skirts and like dressing in that way. Because I remember when I first started playing in, in uh, bands at ETSU, it was kind of a thing where, you know, the, the ladies wore, you know, lady, I mean, ladies always have end up, well, women always ended up having more leeway. I mean, obviously you can wear pants. That's, you know, wasn't that antiquated, but you could wear pants or the men needed to wear ties and suits and the women could wear dresses, but of course they could wear pants or whatever. And so I went through this stage where I was like, okay, now I have to like dress up, you know? And so I bought dresses and I did that whole thing. And like, I ended up looking into, um, uh, I found like these sort of like, you know, uh, like masculine of center and like sort of like androgynous queer, like fashion blogs where I was seeing like women that were able to like find clothes and wear ways this or way where it's it's menswear, but it's they found ways to be able to wear menswear that looks good on them, that 
you know, because sometimes with menswear, I mean, it's cut a certain way, you know? And Mm -hmm. so I started following those kind of blogs and I'm like, that's what I like. And then, so I started like going through this whole kind of, um, kind of fashion evolution. And so since then, um, you know, I've been able to cultivate a style that I feel good and powerful in when I'm on stage. And it's in a way where like, I've always loved menswear and men's clothes. Um, but then I've also, you know, it's finding the right fit. And sometimes, you know, I still go to the women's department to get stuff too, but it's kind of like realizing at the end of the day, like I can still present and dress a certain way, but like find a way for it to either fit my body or, you know, to, you know, just once I've learned those tools to figure all that out, it made putting together outfits a lot more fun. And I would say one of my big style influences, which I realize now has been, um, uh, my dad. Um, I, he, he was a huge style influence. He used to wear like, um, like Western boots and like flared jeans and he would get like, you know, custom suits and he would like, he like, you know, he followed the color wheel and like would match and color coordinate. And I went through a phase where I was wearing like a lot of black and a lot of neutrals. And here lately I've been like incorporating more like muted colors and that kind of thing. So I look at style and clothes as like this ever evolving kind of palette where you can put together just all kinds of different things to express like how you're feeling or what you're, what you're doing. And, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. We do this silly thing on this podcast called the lightning round Mm -hmm. where I just ask you like fun little questions about yourself. It's like when you are, when you lost your password and you're trying to get your password back and ask you all these security questions, except I'm not going to use them to try to find your password. Does huh. that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's like the type of question, you know, like, um, well, the first one okay. is you've already answered the first question, um, the first song you learned on the guitar. So like those kind of questions. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah. All right. You ready? Yes. Okay. Here we go with the lightning round. Sorry. I freaked you out. But I'm, totally, <laughs> That's okay. I'm making you think that I was going to take your password. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> all right. Uh, do you like lakes or beaches? Oh my gosh. Beaches. What's your karaoke song? To the Moon and Back by Savage Garden. <laughs> it's in my key and I don't have to like worry about not being able to sing in my key. So. Good. Um, <laughs> dogs, cats, or something else? Cats. What is your coffee order? Um, a cortado with oat milk and a little bit of cinnamon on top. Favorite U.S. city? This isn't a trick question, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, if I have to say one, I'll say Denver. If I had to say one. First album you bought with your own money? Oh, man. Remember all those mixed CDs that I used to burn <laughs> that we talked about earlier? Uh, oh, my gosh. I don't even remember. Because well, I... <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> Do you remember your first concert? Well... I remember my first concert of a band that I specifically wanted to see, and that was NSYNC when I was 13. But I will say that it was awful because it was like, like, I don't know, 5,000 screaming 13-year-old girls, and like, you could barely hear them. So, I don't know. I mean, that's my first one, but 
Yeah. It's rough. That <laughs> it's is rough. Got, yeah. Um, Things have gotten better since then, but yeah. you know. <laughs> Dream collaboration. Yeah, I'm like terrible, like lightning round, like I'm, I'm terrible at just like, you know. Um, I've always thought it would be cool to have some have something produced by Jack White because I love the way that he produces like Americana and folk records. So that would be cool to do something with him at some point in the future. Good one. Yeah. All right, one more. What is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Wales. Nice. All right, that's it. The lightning round. All right. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> the participating. Slow, the slowest lightning round ever. Sorry. <laughs> it's, this, it's the molasses round. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it, Amethyst. Yeah, thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. It's a pleasure. Basic Folk is produced by Adam Corey with assistance from Laura McCarthy. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of the excellent band Townspeople does our music. I'm Cindy Howes, and I want you to buy a Basic Folk beanie. They're on the website, cindyhowes.net. You can also sign up for our email list. And also, you can get this podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. And rate and subscribe and all that good stuff. And I will talk to you next week. Okay, bye.